I'm Michael McMullen. And I'm John Mark Yates. Welcome to This Week in Church History. Welcome to This Week in Church History. We're so excited to have you joining with us today in our conversation about Richard Baxter, one of the most influential Puritan uh, voices uh, of the 17th century. He wrote a ton of works, uh, not just books, but uh, all types of literature and engaged in many controversial subjects. So for the next few minutes, uh, sit back and let's talk through the life and ministry uh, of Richard Baxter. He was born on the 12th of November in 1615. He died on the 8th of December in 1691. Uh, Mike, why should we care about Baxter? Richard Baxter is one of these men that we maybe know of. He's written The Reformed Pastor. Some people know of the book or maybe they've read a little of it. He's a Puritan, so uh, he's admired, if you like, the Puritans. But he's a man that we really should know so much better his love for people, his love for the church, his love for the lost, his uh, concern to to leave a legacy of of you know these one hundred and thirty books or more that he wrote, uh, just an incredible gift to the church overall. Now, as a as a young man, he had a little bit of a a, a spotty history. Maybe we should we should call it. His family home life was not extremely stable. He was actually removed from his parents' home for a season. Uh, but he still showed, even though he had a, a, a spotty education, he, he still showed amazing uh, aptitude. And um, he, he actually was helped by John Owen. What's the connection between Owen and Baxter? Well, the, you know, Owen helps him um, in, in his kind of progress as a young man. And yet later, the two of them will come into some friction on theological grounds. Yeah, we're going to talk about that because I, I think that's not something to miss at, at all. And I want us to make sure that we hit that that friction point. But it is so helpful to understand that right at uh, the beginning, Owen's very much involved in his discipleship. In fact, steering him clear of Oxford uh, and studying there, which, you know, that would have been a huge mistake, uh, you know, as uh, someone who attended Oxford, but uh, you know that's uh, neither here nor there. But um, Baxter instead goes uh, through uh, a lot of different processes to kind of train and to bring himself to a place where he can be uh, a minister, and he uh, starts serving in churches really as a as a young man. Um, what does he do in the churches that so changes his heart and life and prepares him for his ministry, especially his work uh, in Kidderminster? Yeah, he he's ordained at 23. Um, he feels an immediate concern to win people to Christ and to encourage those already in the church to, uh, you know, be concerned for them in a in a total kind of holistic way. Um, uh, he recognizes that, yeah, he preaches twice a week, uh, an hour at a time. and But it's in his visitation that he realizes how he can really get to know the people uh-huh. in his congregation and then in the town. So it, it, it's a very different approach to visitation that we probably think of today. So why don't you tease that out a little bit? Because... Um... 
this is part of his instruction in, in what is uh, probably his best-known work, the, the Reformed Minister. And so what is he talking about in relation to visitation? So uh, growing up in a Baptist context, uh, at least in the United States, uh, visitation usually was you know, going and either following up on visitors or uh, had something to do with uh, just kind of checking in on some people maybe who hadn't showed up for the last few Sundays. What's so different about his understanding of visitation in in ministry? Uh, of course, as an Anglican and, and a Puritan, um, you have a parish that you're responsible for. So he has the town of Kidderminster, maybe 2,000 people. And he arranges and organizes a, a visitation program himself and his assistant will start at the opposite ends of the town and will visit every house in Kidderminster. Uh, 16 a week is what they usually achieve. So they visit the whole of the town, 800 households every year. And he spends an hour at least with each family. He will uh, share with them. He will witness to them. He will catechize them. It, and, and he clearly discovers that an hour with the family is you know, much more profitable than a, an hour in the church. And so he's able to, it's it, it said he wins the entire town of Kidderminster to Christ. He becomes mm. a, a model pastor for everybody from that point on. Um, and, and again, we, we may not see the kind of blessing or success that he enjoyed, but of course, uh, with God, you never know what God might do through a, a person's ministry. Well, and even in Kidderminster today, if I remember correctly, there's a, there's a, a monument to him and, and a big statue that's uh, there in, kind of in the heart of town. Yeah, and, and, and even that was something of a miracle. It, it was put up 200 years after his yeah. death. And, and a symbol of great unity in the town, uh, you know, nonconformists and Anglicans, the established church together, which was what Baxter was aiming to achieve in and through his ministry, uh, a unity in Christ. We, we didn't compromise what it was we believed, but we worked together for the sake of the gospel. So you mentioned a word there that uh, some of our listeners may not be familiar with. You talked about him being a nonconformist. Um, nonconformity can mean a lot of different things, but given his era in which he lived and the the ridiculous political upheaval that happened in the English Civil War, what what does nonconformity mean uh, in this context in Britain at this time? Well, a nonconformist was a dissenter, somebody who protested that the king, the government, uh, declaring that they had, to, they had the right to set how you would worship together. And, and Baptists and free church and congregationalists and some Puritans acted as nonconformists. Mm -hmm. Now, they would suffer for that stance. And Baxter himself, although he really was you know, seeking to be someone who conformed because he was within the Anglican Church, he will end up in prison twice right. for his views. And he even gets involved during the Civil War of trying to uh, protect uh, other nonconformist pastors, which is part of what he uh, <laughs> he gets in trouble for. 
yeah, he serves as a chaplain uh, for five years um, in Cromwell's army. And and again, to show how um, kind of working for unity he was, he also later becomes a chaplain to the king. Uh, he's offered a bishopric, uh, a kind of, mm-hmm. you know, reward, a massive promotion. And yet he declines that because he's so concerned about his ministry generally. So after the English Civil War during the the period uh, immediately following, things were very hard for um, nonconformists, uh, for Baptists, for independents, uh, for those who had taken a stand. And what does that uh, what does that look like? I mean, we we end up with the the Act of Uniformity in 1662, and then the the subsequent acts that keep trying to rein in the populace of England. What does his ministry look like in this tumultuous time period? How does he serve his people? Yeah, I mean, nonconformists. As as a group, as well as Puritans, um, are going to suffer massively, and and so Baxter will find himself, like two thousand others, uh, ejected from the Anglican ministry because they will not conform to what is prescribed, and um, they will be not allowed to serve where they've been. He's not even allowed to give a farewell message in Kidderminster. And he he will move away and and minister in the areas of London. Mm-hmm. So you can end up in prison. You can end up losing everything. You lose your uh, living, your income, where you live. Uh, it, it's an incredible punitive um, attack by Charles II and a parliament who has no time for nonconformists. Right. So you have roughly twenty five years of incredible difficulty for anyone who wanted to take a stand against the practices uh, of the King of England and the, the, the Church of England at that time. Uh, he, he was actually forcefully taken from one of his meeting houses. He was forcefully taken from uh, his, uh, his house, uh, all for preaching the gospel, all for uh, fulfilling his ministry calling. Um, in, uh, in 1685, uh, there's a, a story of he's he's actually at the king's bench this this famed uh, kind of court area uh, in the charge of uh, libeling the church uh, the the Church of England basically because of what he had written uh, in his uh, in a commentary on on the New Testament and he was he's already lost almost everything they've they've confiscated his materials his books his revenue his everything. Um, he was he was actually sentenced yet again uh, with uh, uh, yet another fine uh, that actually would exceed the revenue of uh, kind of the average person uh, for about a ten year period. So yeah, it, it was crazy. clearly a revenge. He appears before the worst judge that England has probably ever had, uh, Judge Jeffreys, um, <laughs> the the hanging judge. Um, it really didn't matter what you appeared before him for. Uh, the sentence was usually hanging. And and the only reason probably that Baxter wasn't sentenced similarly was that friends had hired six top defense attorneys. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yet the judge had stacked the jury um, with people a- against nonconformists, against the Puritans, 
And so it wasn't a fair trial. And, and he gets six months in prison as well. The, the things that had, you know, oh, and it was said he was 60 years old. He was nothing yeah. but flesh and bones. Um, he, he's a weak, ailing individual. His life, um, he suffered so many illnesses throughout his life. How, how does that, and maybe we could shift gears here. So how does that something that we should think about uh, in terms of ministry, I, I think so frequently we think of or equate blessing of God with health. Uh, we have some who will even preach that the blessing of God is evidenced in wealth or other kinds of things, yet we see men like Baxter who not only are standing firm for the cause of Christ, they're still pressing in and ministering with individual families, with his community, wherever he can and however he can. And yet he's doing it even though he's experiencing uh, overt persecution. His personal health is failing. Um, he's, he's writing about some of these things. What, what difference should we see here in the life of a person who is experiencing this level of challenge and difficulty uh, as far as it relates to ministry? Yeah, he's, he's constantly plagued by illness. Uh, he marries at the age of 47. His wife is 26. Uh, she also will suffer greatly, terrible migraines, uh, terrible anxiety. Um, he does have a, a happy married life, but uh, some of the things he says, even in, in the midst of marriage, you know, my dear wife did look for more good in me than she found. Uh, especially lately in my weakness and decay. Uh, he says the pleasing of a wife is no easy task. Um, he knew what a life of difficulty and a joy in Christ were, that we're not promised that it's going to be an easy life, but we are promised that what we will do, we don't do on our own. We do through the strength of Christ. And this is what Baxter lives. It's what he writes. He, he writes so much because he really doesn't expect to live very long. Um, he's been so ill, he expects to be taken even as a young man. Yet he writes so much and lives much longer than he expected. He gets uh, the nickname Scribbling Dick because of how much <laughs> he actually... He becomes a, a hero for Puritans. Um, you know, Charles Spurgeon uh, will have his wife read the Reformed pastor to him on Sunday nights uh, to quicken my sluggish heart, he says. I mean, mm. the influence of Baxter really is incredible, but it's not done from a life of ease or, you know, kind of blessing where there is no difficulty. Um, he, in his writings, he sends some of his books to the fledgling Harvard Library. And yet, even as he does that, he says later that he would rather that his books were in the backpack of a peddler rather than in the library of learned men. Right. Um, he arranges his royalties with his publisher so that every 10th book he receives free so that he can give it away to the poor. He recognizes because of all the people that he's met through his, his visitation that so many of them are desperate for Christian teaching. And, and this is one way that he can achieve that through himself. 
All right. So there's uh, around 140 books that he he develops and, and puts forward. Uh, from your estimation, at which are, for our readers, which ones should they probably grab and read if they wanted a, a taste uh, of Baxter? Um, I would uh, encourage people to read, I mean, three main books. Uh, the Reform Pastor, um, because it gives us a glimpse of what his heart was for ministry. Right. So those seeking to be pastors today can really be encouraged and challenged by that. Uh, his autobiography, uh, The Saints' Everlasting Rest, if you think your life is difficult, um, that God might seem at a distance, then read this. And again, you'll be just reminded yes. of, of who God is and what it is that he's seeking to do through you. And then the other book um, is his call to the unconverted. And, and it's his challenge of what you know, grace is, what the gospel is, and who we are as seeking to make that known to people. It, it, it was incredibly blessed uh, after publication. Uh, more, more than 30,000 copies were sold uh, in his lifetime in the first printing. Uh, it was printed in, uh, translated into French and German and Dutch, even into Algonquin by John mm -hmm. Eliot yep. uh, that he supported in New England. It, it was an incredibly used and blessed volume. So I would encourage those three at least. Yeah, I would add to that the Christian Directory, um, uh -huh. which <laughs> that doesn't sound like an exciting volume, but in it he outlines Puritan life and practice and and what they held to and theologically what they were attempting to attain in the in the community of faith. Um, it, it it became for many years the the definitive work on on understanding Puritanism and what they were actually after. It also helps us understand that Puritanism wasn't so much of a monolith. It, it wasn't just one steady movement where everyone agreed 100% on everything. And to that point, I promised we would come back to it. Uh, he and Owen, two key leading lights of uh, Puritan thought, and they were at odds, loggerheads, over the extent of the atonement. Well, Baxter you know, as we said earlier, was always one seeking to bring about unity amongst Christians. And, uh, and, and one of the ways that he sought to do that was through theological adjustment. And so he tried to work as a Puritan with Puritans and nonconformists who would differ uh, in their theological outlook. Um, now, the problem was that you know, he's going to be criticized by Puritans for not being Puritan enough. He's going to be criticized by nonconformists uh, for being too Puritan. And then in this theological development, uh, he's going to be criticized for not being orthodox enough. So you end up supposedly criticized by some, um, losing justification by faith. It becomes justification by works. Mm. So as he's uh, wrestling with, uh, with Owen specifically over uh, the atonement, he, he puts forward an idea that, that sounds like uh, he rejects the idea of limited atonement, that there instead is a universal atonement, that it's, it's basically anyone who claims the name of Christ can be saved, which really rattled many of the Calvinists. I think it was a, a lack of understanding 
in in the finesse of what Baxter was claiming, um, and and I think it was just basically something believed through a lack of a, a comprehensive understanding of Baxter. Um, but the, the the debate and the criticism still continue. So you and I were talking even before we went on uh, on our recording here that one of the possible subjects that, that maybe somebody could explore would be a tie between Baxter's view of the atonement and, and maybe Fuller, uh, that there might be a connection that's that's there that, that we've not, maybe somebody's done it, but we hadn't seen it. Uh, that there might be some uh, some helpful ties up there as well. Yeah, and even bringing into the debate uh, somebody like John Owen, um, who's as interesting in these kind of areas too. Mm. One way of summing Baxter up, um, you know, for people when they're thinking about him, that kind of thing, is a quote that he gave. He says, I was but a pen in God's hands, mm. and what praise is due to a pen. And and that's who Baxter saw himself as in, in, in all the supposed success of his ministry and his writing and everything else. Uh, he really did see himself as this pen in the hand of God to do whatever it was uh, that God deigned to do through him. What a great way to close out this episode of This Week in Church History. Uh, readers, we would strongly encourage you, uh, take uh, some time and read uh, Baxter. Read his own works uh, that would encourage you, your heart, your ministry, uh, but as well, uh, even just take lessons from his own pastoral experience uh, to begin to love and work on the people and the church of God. Thanks for listening to This Week in Church History. We will join you next week for another episode. It will be our final one for the year, our Christmas special. We're looking forward to debunking and working through Christmas myths in church history. So we'll see you next week on This Week in Church History.